This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. This week we do something of a revisit to a show we talked about in a previous episode. You may recall actor Bill Oberst Jr. talking to me about his stage show, Ray Bradbury, Live Forever. Well, today I'll be talking to his co-producer, a filmmaker and visual effects wizard named Christopher Cooksey. Now, I appreciate that visual things don't go down particularly well in an audio medium, but as a Bradbury fan, I'm sure you're used to using your imagination to fill in any gaps. Bradbury's work has been particularly attractive to visual artists. There's a whole book dedicated to this, Jerry Wiest's Visually Rich, Ray Bradbury, An Illustrated Life. A large part of that book is taken up with illustrations from the many magazine appearances of Ray's stories and covers from his many books. But there's also a section in there about stage work and how visual treatments have enlivened his stage plays. Bradbury wrote many plays, some single-act ones, often based on his short stories, and a handful of full-length plays, often based on his novels. You may recall that another guest on the podcast was Jerry Robbins of Colonial, who produced several radio dramatisations taken directly from Bradbury's play scripts. But how would you bring these to life, on the stage? Naturally, there's the actors and the scenery, and sometimes Bradbury's director's notes tell us what should be aimed for here. But then there are other audiovisual elements. For example, how would you bring to life the mechanical hound in Fahrenheit 451? Fortunately, Ray gives us a hand. In his play script for Fahrenheit, he tells us to do it with projection, lights and sound effects. The first appearance of the Hound in the play is on a blueprint, and Ray's script tells us this. The light comes up on a suspended screen mid-centre rear, where the image of a half-realised, blueprinted, X-rayed Hound appears. Every three seconds, the image changes, front, back, side. Later in the play, the actual Hound comes sniffing around Montag's door. Bradbury's stage directions tell us at this moment, the great sound of the hound arrives outside. The hound snuffles and sows at the house. A faint green glow can be seen with a great shadow under the door. This is typical of Bradbury writing for the stage. Anything important that would be impossible to create in the flesh, he will tend to do with lights and shadows and sound. In the introduction to his play collection, The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit and other plays, he talks about the staging for The Velt. This is the one about the children's nursery where fully immersive artificial reality creates lions and other creatures. How on earth could you do that on a stage? Ray admits that when he first staged the play, he originally considered doing it with projected footage of real lions. But instead he decided that the audience would be the lions. 
Whenever the actors look out at the vault, they're looking out into the auditorium. On top of that, you can add a few sound effects in the four corners of the theatre. Ray writes, This allowed us to prowl the lion roars in circles around about and behind the audience, keeping them a bit off balance, never knowing where the sound of the lions might rise again in the long grass. Another important element for Ray's plays often came in the form of projected images, not just of practical effects like showing the blueprints of the hound, but to suggest location or to provide atmosphere. In that book by Jerry Wiest, you'll find a number of illustrations by the great Joe Mugnani. Mugnani was the cover artist for Fahrenheit 451 and provided the interior line drawings for The October Country and Golden Apples of the Sun. For theatre, Mugnani provided wonderful cells of houses, timepieces and Martian architecture. Mugnani also did the artwork for numerous posters for Ray's plays, including Leviathan 99 and The World of Ray Bradbury. I've mentioned before that Bradbury's words and Mugnani's images make a natural pairing, but it goes beyond just the books. The plays combined the two in real time as the drama unfolded on the stage. Now, cut to the 21st century, and Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Oberst Jr. decides to mount a one-person show where he brings Bradbury to life on stage. How do you represent the stories, Bradbury's imaginative creations? Well, you probably need a special effects artist, a filmmaker, someone who can work with miniatures, animation, CGI, you probably need my guest this week, Christopher Cooksey. Joining me today is Christopher Cooksey. He's an artist and filmmaker, and among his many achievements is creating the animations and visuals for the stage show Ray Bradbury Live Forever, or is that Ray Bradbury Live Forever, a show which he co-produced with actor Bill Oberst Jr., uh, Christopher, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you. I am very honoured to be here. Um, the fact that I get to grift off of Bradbury's legacy at all is is quite wonderful. It's a dream come true. <laughs> I think we all feel the same way, actually. <laughs> Tell me how you first discovered Bradbury. It's, it's very interesting, actually. I, as a little kid, remember the uh, Martian Chronicles television show coming on and my dad sitting down to watch it and saying, Ooh, this isn't really representative of Bradbury. This isn't, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but this doesn't capture the magic of what the books are. And as a kid, I was a avid reader already. I mean, I had a lot of, you know, kids novels, but I also had the Chronicles of Narnia little book box set, which I still own to this day, actually. So I was very interested at the uh, supermarkets. They, you know, had their little stand that was paperback novels. And a lot of times there were novelizations of movies, which I always thought was fantastic because if I wasn't allowed to see a rated R movie, I could sneak the novelization and still get the story. But of course, for Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, they had just repackaged 
that book with a cover with a photograph of, of one of the Martians from the television show. So I can't remember, I get, you know, my parents bought that for me and I remember reading it and enjoying it, but you know, as a kid, you know, your attention span isn't that much and you move on to other things, but Bradbury kept coming up in my life. Uh, turned out unbeknownst to even my family that uh, a family friend of ours, Sue Nixon, was actually the daughter of Ray Bradbury, who lived locally uh, where we were. She was actually married to Tommy Nixon, who was a friend of my parents, who's a roadie for the Eagles. My dad was in the music industry. And they had gone to Tommy and Sue's wedding that Ray Bradbury was at. Through the years, I kept seeing Sue. She worked at a local bookstore, a Barnes and Noble. And I read more and more of Bradbury, and he became more of a, a, a strong influence on my development as a human being. And I think, you know, people can say there are many novels they read that kind of have an impact on them when they're young and kind of help cultivate certain ideas that are useful. And Bradbury kept going to libraries, he kept going to Barnes and Noble, and he kept giving talks, which I could always show up to. So from there, uh, as an adult, after I got married, it's funny, I started taking an interest in special effects and filmmaking and comic books. And then my dad would go up to a little town about 40 minutes north of where we live called Ventura, where there was this gentleman that he would drink with. And this gentleman was doing a documentary with Ray Bradbury, not so much about his life, but about his imagination. Bradbury was already very elderly at the time, but my dad said, oh yeah, my son loves Ray Bradbury and he does special effects. So that ended up being a collaboration. Bradbury was involved as a producer where he was kind of giving instructions. And then this uh, other gentleman who was a producer was giving me instructions and I was creating puppets. And we were, at first it was a stage play, which was called Live Forever, A Ray Bradbury Odyssey. And then it was going to be the documentary. The stage play happened once. There was one week in the performances and it wasn't bad. Ray couldn't show up for that. He was, he was already very elderly and having a lot of medical problems. And then the documentary was going fairly well, but then after Bradbury passed away, it all fell apart. So for a while, I just became a Bradbury fan again. It was an honor to be able to get involved with Bradbury. And I, I got some stuff signed. The funny thing is, is I got things like posters that I had created. We created a Mr. Electrico poster uh, that a friend of mine modeled for. And I did the Photoshop work and we created like carnival posters. And Ray Bradbury signed a few of those along with the rest of the cast and crew, which was wonderful. So, yeah, it, it seems like synchronicity. Even when I'm not seeking Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury seems to seek me out even in the afterlife. And I, I can't explain it, but it is wonderful. So how did you then become involved with Bill Oberst's show? Talk about magic. I just, I just have to say that up front. I had seen an interview with Bill on a filmmaking channel called uh, Film Courage, and a lot of people have found Bill that way. I was very impressed with him. The work ethic that he expounded, his general philosophy on life and, and um, what it means to be passionate about your art. And so I just sent him a friend request on Facebook and, and sent him a little message saying, I, I loved your interview. And from there, there were little exchanges, but we both 
found out from mutual posts that we had a thing for Ray Bradbury. And then I said, you've seen my YouTube channel where I interview various uh, professionals from actors and special effects artists and directors. I said to him, hey, I'd love to have you on my show. And we ended up talking about Bradbury on that show. And then afterward, he said, hey, listen, I want to I want to pitch you something. I'm working on something here. And it's Bradbury, which instantly, yeah, okay, Bradbury, Bill Oberst. And by then, a, a, a great amount of admiration for Bill. When you find people that share your work ethic and, and share commonalities and philosophy and values, you know, you want to stick with those people. So he said, like, I, you know, you've seen the shows, the Mark Twain shows, these one man shows. And I was like, yeah, you know, Val Kilmer is really famous for adopting the Mark Twain persona. He's like, well, I want to do the same thing with Bradbury. I went, great. What do you got? And so he sent me this script. It was brilliant. Now, Bill will tell you that it was just Ray's words. He just cobbled together the stuff that he thought fit well. But the way that Bill really did it was wonderful. And as a performer, as a stage performer, Bill understands kind of the, um, if you're familiar with Aristotle's The Poetics, um, he's familiar with getting the audience response and, and testing it out. He'll go up on stage and he'll feel the audience reacting or not reacting, and then he'll adjust. So through different incarnations, he kind of adjusted this script. He had seen some of the stuff I'd done for the original Bradbury documentary, which I was I had put out on a show reel, which was uh, things that I'd done with friends. Um, my friend Dave Grave had created the Wheel of Destiny, uh, a miniature that Ray Bradbury absolutely loved. And we had done some footage of it against a green screen with other miniatures and showed the Wheel of Destiny moving in stop motion. And Bill was like, hey, can I just pay you for the rights to that? I'd love to be able to project it on the screen behind me. And I was like, well, actually, I don't own the rights to that footage. But the actual Wheel of Destiny, the person who created that, never signed a contract saying, you know, this is exclusive to this. So I said, I can get that back and do a reshoot and, and do something new for you. And he said, well, how much would you charge me? And I gave him a rate, my general monthly rate. And he's like, ooh, he's like, I can afford about a month from you. And that's it. And I was like, well, this is about four months worth of work. But I was like, it's Bradbury. I was like, how about we collaborate and uh, you let me do some things that I want to do and uh, give me a producer credit. And he said, sure, absolutely. So it did become a true collaboration. It kind of became like going to the church of Ray Bradbury. We would talk on the phone like two giddy teenagers about things we wanted to do. And it wasn't just like, hey, I have this idea. It would be great if we hit this note on, you know, a certain part of the script or something like that. It was like Bill would call me up. It's like, I had a dream about about a cave full of paintings. And and I would go like, that's awesome. He's like, can we do like a, a, a cave full of paintings? Like I'll, I'll pull up some photos online of cave paintings and maybe I can project them on the screen behind me. And I was like, well, what if we create our own cave? When you look close at them, what if they're, from Bradbury's stories instead. And he's like, that's amazing. He's like, he's like, can we do that? And I was like, yeah, we can do that. And then a really interesting thing happened where friends of ours started getting involved. My friend Val Merrick, who is a very well-known comic book artist, he most famously co-created Howard the Duck. He wanted to be involved. And he's like, I know you guys are out of money, but I, I just want to be involved. Can I do the poster for the show? And I said, hey, we're also doing these cave paintings. Cave paintings are actually 
a very spiritual and, and kinetic style, which is hard to nail. I couldn't do it, but Val did it. So I took these illustrations and I put them in a cave and I animated them and put fire in and it didn't feel like work. It felt like everyone was just really excited and there was a very spiritual aspect to it. I know it sounds goofy, but it felt like Ray was there with us, you know, invisible, poking our brains to do this stuff. It was just this kinetic, magical thing where we're now still talking about in 2022, bringing the play back and making some adjustments. Yeah, it's thrilling. (laughs) (laughs) On your YouTube channel, you you mentioned some of the things that you've got on there, but I noticed you've also got some kind of instructional videos where you're, you're showing people how to do things like make an alien chest burster. So, and that made me wonder where you learned all of your techniques and crafts from. Are, are you from an art school background or, or what? I was a bit of a uh, of a lost child in a way. <laughs> with uh, I was diagnosed early with learning disabilities, and I won't go into all the uh, shenanigans that surrounded my life from childhood through into my early twenties, but. I was very much someone just trying to find direction. When you're young, people are trying to kind of guide you in directions that they think are best for you to go. There are a lot of manipulations that take you away from the things that you might actually be passionate about. At a very early age, of course, I found Star Wars and Star Trek, a lot of these wonderful movies, the aliens, the the first two aliens, not the, the stuff that came after that, those movies. Predator, Terminator, all that stuff. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And I got familiar with the names of the people who were doing this stuff. And I was, I, you know, they wouldn't actually explain how they were doing this is pre-YouTube. They weren't explaining the work, but you could see them working on stuff and kind of watch and kind of suss out what it was that they were doing to get the effects they wanted. I remember particularly Stan Winston, of course, and Rick Baker, and uh, most notably, uh, I was just a huge fan of the Aliens movies, and I would see Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr., who went on to create their own company studio, ADI, which they worked on Tremors and Alien 3 and Starship Troopers and the Santa Claus and Spider-Man and all these different movies doing practical effects work. Again, synchronicity, I took a job and I would go on walks every day. And by then I was already trying this stuff out. I was trying to make my own puppets and miniatures and that sort of thing based on what I was seeing. And YouTube was starting to become more of a thing, but not so much yet that it was the limitless plethora of resources that it is now. But I was on a walk and somebody had mentioned that there was a special effects studio around, but I didn't quite know where it was, but I was, I'd walk around the buildings and I, and I came across an, a rolled up, truck bay door and i look inside and this aliens is the uh, brain bug from starship trooper just all in there i was like what is this so i would continue to walk around every once in a while hoping that there would be an open door that i could peek into and at some point right in the parking lot of this building there were some people working on this giant what looked like an anime head it was turned out to be for a giant rod puppet for a a cell phone promotion or something like that. But I was like, wow, that is cool. So I ran back to where I worked and the other guys in the catalog department were all artists. So I was like, you guys got to come check this out. 
we all come running up, but we keep a respectful distance. But a couple of the guys are like waving us up going like, you guys come on up and take a look. So uh, we did. And there was something familiar about these guys. And they're like, you want to tour the inside? And we're like, yeah, sure. So he takes us inside and there's this immense showroom and it has aliens and predators and bugs from Starship Trooper and stuff from the X-Men movies. And I recognized this showroom from the behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I know who you are. You're Alec Gillis. Um, super exciting. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to make some special effects myself. I'm trying to make a short film. He gave me his email address and he said, hey, if you ever have any questions or anything like that, feel free to send them on. Or if you've got work you're doing, send it on, which was just really encouraging boost. Right at that time, they started a YouTube channel where they started to show their stuff and the Stan Winston School of Character Arts started to happen. So it was just a combination of just a, a passion for this and just continually digging. And the more I dug, the more resources came to light till now. Again, it's it's just a, it's an embarrassment of riches. You know, you can go to the Stan Winston School of Character Arts or you can go on YouTube and there's a bunch of people doing it. And I just wanted to join in on that. I felt like when I was a young, impressionable person, like I still am now at 45, I was always grateful for those tidbits, that encouragement from people. So now I have people contacting me, asking me, like, how did you do this? Or, And I'll go and make a video about it. I'm actually behind on my video. I've got a bunch of video behind the scenes that I've shot that I haven't edited yet and put up on the YouTube channel. But I wanted it to be a resource that I would have loved to have had when I was younger. I'm glad to know that there are people who are encouraged by it. You know, it's really something to get uh messages from people saying, hey, you're an inspiration to me, and then show me something they did based on what I did. And some of these people are not kids. Some of these people are Hollywood professionals. Yeah, I mean, you must be driven by curiosity as much as anything else, surely, that, that, you, that you see a thing and you wonder, how was that done? And then how would I do that myself? And then that's what spurs you on. Surely that must be part of the, the process. Curiosity is paramount. If you're not driven by some form of curiosity, some willingness or need to explore, then you're not going to get very far. There's information to discover, and then there are things to discover within yourself. And that's what true inspiration is. That's when you kind of hit something that makes other people go, wow, how did you do that? How did you come up with that? And it's a combination of curiosity and vision. Now, vision is something that it kind of gets made fun of, like a director on set getting angry because someone says, well, why don't we do this? And they go, but that's not my vision. Vision is, you know, just seeing something in your mind, seeing what you want. And then that's kind of the, the destination you set for yourself, having vision and, and leading people. If you're talking about being a film director or anything where, you know, a stage play or even a comic book, anywhere where you have to rally some people together and lead them to a place that's having vision. You have to have vision and you have to have faith in that vision. My mantra is have faith in art. And you have to also trust that there's things going on in your mind, in your subconscious, that you consciously are not privy to. The writer Alan Moore once said, artists don't give the audience what they want. They give them what they need. And I kind of amended that. I thought, well, if you think you know what the audience needs, maybe you're being a little pretentious or a little maybe thinking a little higher of yourself 
if you're true to your art and you have faith in what you're doing, you will deliver something to the audience that they may find useful. And that's where the art is completed when they receive it and they kind of complete the thought in their mind. And I think that's actually one of the most important lessons that I learned from Bradbury. I, I think he was one of the most successful people at doing that. He would give you a lot of useful information, a lot of different perspectives and his mind would change over time. Something that he wrote when he was younger uh, may not gel with what he wrote when he was older philosophically, but it's all useful. It's all things to consider. And he never crammed it down your throat in a way that, that made it feel like he's going, I'm Ray Bradbury and I know more than you. It was always delivered in this beautiful way that was both could be chilling and, and enlightening and, and, and fill you with, with hope and wonder. I, I think very few writers actually accomplish that. It's, and it's wonderful. This great lesson that I learned from him. It's interesting what you say about sort of unconscious things and conscious things. Bradbury for many years had a, a little uh, sign above his typewriter that said, don't think, because he believed that the, the best ideas would just flow out of him and that if he sat and thought about them, the flow would stop. So he wanted to, to maintain that continuous flow. But at the same time, he also had this belief of his phrase was throw up in the morning, clean up at noon, by which he meant just get the ideas out onto the page without thinking about them. But then later on, come back with a rational mind and sift through what you've created and decide which bits work and which bits don't. So there's a for him, there was a two stage process that he sometimes admitted to. I believe so much of his work endures and so much of his work is timeless because of that. There was an interview that he did with the producer that I work with when we were doing the original documentary, which he had replaced throw up in the morning. He said, and I forgive me, I'll, I, I can't really do a good Ray Bradbury impersonation, but he's like, it's like in the morning, I, I step on a landmine and I explode. Boom. That's me. And then I sift through all the pieces and I, and I put it back together. And that's, that's the story. And, you know, and, and yeah, don't think now don't think doesn't mean, you know, don't use your brain. <laughs> it just means you can get in your own way. I absolutely love David Lynch because David Lynch will just be like, you know, to this day, when we shot that scene, I still have no idea what it's about. Like, awesome. Let that be your story. And that's what have faith in art means don't suddenly believe that you've got to come in and give the audience some sage piece of advice because that's when you are in danger of turning art into propaganda you might as well just be posting a tweet and we're all tired of twitter let the art flow because then you give people something that even if it didn't occur to you it might spark something in them and again i think this is what bradbury was so good at a lot of people laud fahrenheit 451 is his most important book and in a lot of ways it is my opinion is his most pure form of art it's a toss-up these days between the martian chronicles and from the dust returned those are when he really was just letting it flow i am always going back to those books going back to the show you did with bill and that we hope you'll do some more of with bill uh, can you describe some of the ways that you took ideas from Bradbury stories and transferred them to the stage? Whew. 
that's again it was a spiritual experience it was it's difficult to quantify one of the things we wanted to do was something that <laughs> i tell bill this if i ever got to direct a martian chronicles anthology i would set it in ray's time or i'd set it from ray's point of view i wouldn't try and modernize it or anything like that there's things in the martian chronicles that date it doesn't mean that it's not timeless it doesn't mean it's a dated work it's just you know rockets and the way that people talked and the feeling of the time is is baked into the martian chronicles and i would try and bake that into the martian chronicle anthology if i ever shot it and so we approached all of ray's work that way as if we were back in the 1950s or 60s with ray going what do we do bills wanted to do a sound of thunder the story about time travelers who go back to the prehistoric era to game hunt a T-Rex. And, you know, he goes through all this idea about how the T-Rex was already going to die. And, and so killing it at that point is not going to alter the timeline. But the uh, butterfly that the astronaut steps on a butterfly, which alters the timeline. And when they return, everything's different. You know, Bill was just like the lost world the original silent black and white Lost World movie is in the public domain. He's like, I'll just grab some frames from that and project it behind me. And I was like, Bill, you have me here. I'm I'm excited. You know, I want this to be the best play it possibly can. It's like, let me build you a tabletop miniature. I didn't have a lot of materials. I just had cardboard and I was literally walking around the neighborhood picking up sticks that look like branches that could be in a prehistoric forest or something like that cardboard tubes kind of making these Dr. Seuss like uh, palm tree trunks and that sort of thing. I didn't have a, a lot of space to create a pathway that just went on and on or, or a really long miniature. What I learned from people like Ray Harryhausen and, you know, the practical effects artists from all the way back in the silent era, which was to create forced perspective. I created a path that it tapered off into a point, but if you angled the camera at a certain way to, to frame it, it looked like it was just winding off into the horizon. And Bill, of course, being a fan of these effects, he just loved that. And again, it was just, you know, feeding off the excitement of it. And then we used some modern technology to bring in the butterflies. I created an animated butterfly and I I camera tracked it. And I used some uh, after effects to bring in some fog and light rays coming through the trees. I backlit it so I could take this backlight and really kind of blow it out and make it look like the sun was shining through these prehistoric trees. And then the animated butterfly, Bill and I started talking about that. And I said, Bill, what if this butterfly is kind of like a through line? Like you see it everywhere. You know, it's like this butterfly from a sound of thunder is just showing up everywhere in all these different scenes that we create. And he thought that was a really good idea. He named it Timey because it was kind of flying through the ages. So Bill took it. We, we had Bill's cave that he dreamed about that Val and I created. And we had Timey flying through that cave. I was living in Arizona at the time and I went to Sedona. It's like a mini Grand Canyon, but all the rocks are red like it's Mars. So I photographed all of these red rocks and I composited them into this red cave and we used them for Martian landscapes. And if you ever want to shoot the Martian Chronicle in a real location, I think Sedona is it. But I composited them in and I did what's called displacement maps, which makes it look 3D. So that was a combination of photography. And then I went to California where my dad was at the time for Thanksgiving. And I 
went back to Dave who had the Ferris wheel and I said, let's reshoot this. So we reshot that Ferris wheel. Uh, unfortunately, there's just been a rash of really bad fires in California. So it was a lot of burnt out stuff. So I was taking photographs of all these burnt out areas, burnt out cars, that sort of thing. And I was compositing them in because we wanted to do something wicked this way comes. David made all these miniatures for, you know, the dark carnival, things like lost children, that sort of thing. And I combined them in with these miniatures that I made of like a burnt out, broken down wall. And I composited in these photographs from the fires. And I did the Hiroshima shadows of the girl and boy tossing the ball to one another from There Will Come Soft Rains. So we were kind of mixing, blending Ray's stories together. You know, I was like, if I could do do a little CGI, if I could do miniatures, it was kind of like saying like, what if me and Ray and his buddies from the past all kind of came together and, you know, pooled our different technologies, never preferring one over the other. And then again, just kind of this, this idea of mixing the different metaphors, you know, taking the butterfly from a sound of thunder and having it fly through everything, having it fly through the velts, the African velt from that story, having it in the constellation of the stars in Waukegan, Illinois from dandelion wine, or, or having it be a piece of graffiti on a, on a burnt out wall at the dark carnival, where there's also, there will come soft rains. It just kind of became like, like a dream where you're in Ray Bradbury's imagination and you're seeing all his stories, but they're all kind of melting together rather than just going, here's this story, here's this story, here's this story. And to have that become a character on a screen behind Bill, where Bill and I would talk about the screen being like another character, even though it was a one man show. And sometimes Ray would say things and the screen would do something different. Like, Hey Ray, these are your words, but here's, we found this example of your imagination doing something different. And it felt like Ray's subconscious was opening up to us as well, uh, which may all be bull, you know, but we certainly, like I said, like giddy teenagers finding some cool toy that we never thought we'd have access to. It was just magic. So I, that's the best I can explain it. But at the same time, there's, like I said, there's a feeling of just, otherworldly spirituality that came with it that we all felt. Are you familiar with this book, Ray Bradbury, An Illustrated Life? Yes, the, the illustrations in there are wonderful. I mean, there are times where I can just point to them and go like, seeing that picture was kind of a defining moment in my life. <laughs> you know, like, oh, everything changed when I saw that illustration. I've always thought it remarkable that you could take an author and represent them almost entirely through pictures. I can't think of many authors that you could do that with. And obviously with Bradbury, there's enough to fill a book there. But it's amazing the, the amount of illustration and, and visualisation that is attached to his work over the years. And obviously he's been in TV shows, films and theatre, so there's all those other visual outlets as well. But I think he's a, an incredibly rich visual author compared to any others that, that you could think of. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's, again, the wonderful thing about art. Ray Bradbury can, as soon as you start reading his words, you're there. You are there. Art is when the audience takes what you've created and completes it in their own mind. And Ray Bradbury, I think, really was good at embracing that. If you give the Martian Chronicles to anyone and say, illustrate it, you'll get something different from every artist, but it'll all instantly be recognizable as Bradbury. 
are there any other authors who've inspired your work? Yes, uh, plenty. I do love horror. I love Clyde Barker. I think he's a really underrated writer. Another writer that I feel like another generation needs to discover. Brutal stuff, uh, really dark, but at the same time, very insightful and very honest work. I do love science fiction, of course. I love uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Michael Crichton, Robert Heinlein, Alan Moore in terms of comic books. Most recently, Gindi Tartakovsky, who's created Samurai Jack and Primal. I love what he's done with animation. This is something that I think gets taken for granted. Marshall McLuhan, in saying the medium is the message, is essentially uh, nothing that you can create in a medium will be as impactful as the creation of the medium itself. His example was nothing said on the telephone can ever transcend the fact that the telephone was invented, allowing you to say it at all. And a lot of people kind of, I don't know, either don't understand what that really means or or reject it out of hand because they go, well, of, of course, what I have to say is more important than the medium. I think the most successful storytellers embrace the medium that they're telling their story in. This is true for William Shakespeare. If you turn Hamlet into a novelization, it would be a disaster. The, the reason that Hamlet works so well is that William Shakespeare had a passion for being a playwright, which was, the, of course, the medium of the day. And Alan Moore really embraced comic books and most of his comic books, like The Watchmen, he said, I wrote it to be unfilmable. That doesn't mean he wrote it poorly for film. It means he embraced the metaphors that the medium of a comic book can give you he used them to their fullest in ways that if you tried to translate that into film, people wouldn't understand it, especially if they're not comic readers to begin with. They don't understand the medium, the language, the vocabulary of comic books. And Ray did this with his novels. And I think turning his novels into movies for the most part has been turbulent to say the least. Again, with Gindi Tartakovsky, who I mentioned, the stories he tells can only be told in animation. If you were to get actors together and say, you know, like his recent series Primal, which is a caveman riding a dinosaur, and they have this kind of like man and his dog relationship. If you were to try and get an actor to do that and have a CGI dinosaur, it wouldn't be nearly as compelling because Gindi Tartakovsky knows how to take the medium of animation. There are fundamentals to storytelling and structure and plot and and character, but they transmogrify with every medium you go into. So whatever medium you want to tell a story in, be passionate about that medium, really embrace that medium. Because I see people, especially these, I love comic books and I love film, but I see a lot of people going, well, maybe we can turn our movie script into a comic book. Uh, And that way we'll get it funded as a movie. And it's like, yeah, but what you're going to have is a really mediocre comic book because you don't understand or care about the the medium of comics. And that's going to make your story fall flat on its face. And people are going to read that mediocre comic and go, this is terrible. Why do I want to turn this into a movie? When really, as a movie, it would work very well because that's what they're passionate about. And I believe it was Beethoven. I'll, I'll just conclude my my answer to your question with this my friend jenna green who's a special effects artist she posted a quote from beethoven the other day i'd never heard before but i thought it was wonderful and says it was something like it is better to play one note wrong than to play an entire symphony perfect 
but without passion. And I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> We're going to run out of time very soon, so I'm just going to give you a couple of quick questions. I have this standard question that I always ask people. If you're stuck on a desert island and you're only allowed to have one Bradbury item with you, what would you choose? Ooh, well, probably the Martian Chronicles. I can read that book again and again and always get something new from it, something or something that renews me. If we're talking about memorabilia, and is this is this a visual interview or is it audio only? Uh, it's audio only, unfortunately, but you, I'm sure you could describe the, the visual thing that you have in mind. About right uh, there. Yeah. That's a Mr. Electrico poster that I created. And Ray, along with the entire cast and crew of our original documentary, also signed it. And like I said, despite it kind of not working out and there being some partings of ways, it was still a great experience. And to know that Ray, even though he wasn't there physically because he was at home, he was still with us all the way. And so when we sent him a bunch of copies of this Mr. Electrico poster, he signed them all. And I did give one to Bill, actually, as a piece of memorabilia as well. My friend Dave Grave is, is the model for Mr. Electrico in that. Uh, so as far as memorabilia goes, it'd be that, but as far as books, which I think, you know, is going to keep you more entertained on a desert Island. Yeah. The Martian Chronicles. What are you working on now? And, and has the pandemic been awkward for whatever you're working on? Well, I'm bullheaded and fearless as Ray Bradbury said, and I'm paraphrasing here, ask not for guarantees, make your own way. And if you die swimming to shore, at least you knew you were doing it on your own terms. That's a horrible paraphrase. The pandemic has not really stopped me and uh, I don't intend to let it. And if for somehow it kills me, then so be it. You know, none of us are getting out alive. So I don't want to wait for life to give me permission to do something because I could die waiting. So in terms of what I'm working on at the moment, I am uh, trying to finish up my first feature film, The Quantum Terror, which is done but we had a lot of audio issues during filming. So we're working to correct those. And that has been a slog. Uh, Bill and I are also discussing what the rejuvenated version of Ray Bradbury live forever is going to be. And I am planning my next feature films, which uh, hopefully I will shoot the next one in September. There's also animated projects. I probably have about, 10 different projects in mind. It's going to probably take me the next 10 years to do them, but there's no shortage. And they all involve fun special effects, not just CGI, but, you know, really we want to make independent content that Hollywood wouldn't do. And I really believe that now is the time for independent filmmakers to, to really be bold and get out there and, and try and shake things up by not thinking not going with the basic uh, Hollywood formulas and really diving into their imagination. And if listeners would like to find out more about your work, where should they look? Instagram, where you can find me at, at Christopher Moonlight and uh, Christopher Moonlight Productions on YouTube, where I either do tutorials, interview people like we're interviewing here, or just talk to the camera and uh, pontificate give my thoughts and advice 
which uh, you may want to take or leave. Because as Oscar Wilde said, another author that I really love, there's nothing more dangerous than somebody else's advice and good advice can be absolutely fatal. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, Christopher Cooksey, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. My thanks once again to Christopher Cooksey. Now, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But that's it for today, and I hope you'll join me next time for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Thank you.